Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jessica Gonzalez, and she is a cannabis and IP attorney with Bressler, Amy, Amory, and Ross. She is also general counsel for Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Uh, I love these conversations. The legal side is fascinating. It really shapes the industry, you know, the, the rules and the regulations that we're under on a federal level and on a state-by-state level really impact how businesses approach uh, the business of cannabis uh, and really shape where we're going. So I'm excited for this conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of general context in terms of uh, marijuana and and cannabis and the, the laws surrounding it. We're also going to talk a little about what's going on in the East Coast here, particularly in the tri-state area. Lots of interesting things going on between New York and New Jersey. Big plans that everyone kind of has in the works and the budgets. Uh, we'll see how things play out. But with that, Jessica, welcome to the program. Great. Yes. Glad to be here. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we get to know you a little bit and kind of understand your background and how you got into cannabis, and then we can kind of jump into the, the drama that's happening on the legal side. What was the background? How to, tell me about getting into law and tell me about getting into cannabis. Yep, sure. Um, so I was one of those unique individuals who knew that I wanted to be a lawyer from since I was about 16. 
And I always knew that I wanted to do something with a corporate type of lawyer, somebody who works with businesses. So I went to undergrad and I got my um, my degree in finance there. Went to law school. Um, I concentrated in intellectual property. And so all of my internships and classes were in intellectual property. And actually, one thing that you know I'll always remember is there was actually a cannabis internship available my first year of law school. Wow. So that was in 2013. And I was advised to not apply for it for how it would look like on my resume. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now looking back, I realize I just should have listened to Damn. myself. Um, yeah. and, you know, I would have had a couple years head start up in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, but I actually used to joke about being a cannabis attorney all the time. I never thought that it would become reality. But you know, here we are, I've manifested it. And while I was working as an intellectual property attorney, I started to really have some sort of existential crisis about my life and how I was going to help the world and help folks that I really, you know, wanted to provide legal services for. And my boss actually at the time had created a very a niche area for himself in the entertainment space. And I, you know, I looked at him and I said, well, I can probably do the same with something that I'm passionate about, right? So now you have to ask yourself, well, what are you passionate about? Um, and that question was a little hard for me. And when I thought about it, you know, I realized that I've been a consumer of this plant for almost 11 years. Yeah. It's helped me physically. It's helped me emotionally, spiritually, mentally. I owe a lot to plant medicine. Yeah. And when I had this thought, it was at the same time when Governor Murphy of New Jersey was elected. And so okay. he was running on you know, his two W's, weed and wages. And he took care of, of the wages. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're still waiting on uh, on the other platform but yeah. i figured this was a very good opportunity for a young attorney such as myself to become a leader in the space because with very little precedent with very little happening it was a really good chance for me to really distinguish myself and be able to help craft an area of law that definitely needed a lot of help. And it was actually finally something that I fully understood. I knew about the plant. I knew about its healing properties. I come from a long line of healers. And that's when I figured, you know, this could be my area. So I actually, I created like a list of 10 events, cannabis events, and I hit up every single event that I possibly could <laughs> yeah. to learn about, you know, to learn from people who were involved and to learn about, you know, all this advocacy work that was really happening behind the scenes. And it wasn't really as prominent as it is now where you see all of these advocates, but folks had been doing it for, for a very long time on the East Coast, but it wasn't reported. It wasn't talked about. The more I dove into cannabis, the more that I realized that there were so many inequities that were happening. You know, I learned about the history of it, all of the racial discrimination that came along with it mm -hmm. and the impact that the criminalization of this plant actually had. And that really motivated me to learn more, invest in my learning and my education and so that I could start advising some of these clients who really wanted to participate. And legal services is a huge barrier to entry for a lot of these either startup companies or just really anybody who wants to get involved in cannabis. It's legal services is a, is a heavy cost. And so I figured that if, if I could play a part, it would be through my legal skills and my legal acumen. Mm -hmm. And that's how I began to get involved. I started out with intellectual property. I always tell folks, if you're trying to get into this industry, just use what skills you have and pivot. So yeah. I didn't yeah, have, exactly. you know, any, you know, how to do licensing, but I understood intellectual property. So I, I came in with that. 
And that, you know, it started to grow from there. And, you know, once I started doing some, some trademark filings for my clients, that led into contract work that worked, yeah, that led into licensing work. And the breadth of my, uh, my practice really began to grow, but it started out through intellectual property. Yeah. And in fact, intellectual property is an interesting one, uh, you know, from a business point of view. Um, why, why don't you just kind of frame for people a little bit about what's included when we talk about intellectual property, IP, what is kind of included in that from a legal kind of domain point of view and then and then we can kind of talk about why you know it's interesting or different in the in the cannabis space yeah sure uh so i was going to so many events and seeing these really cool logos and really great creative names i was asking a lot of these owners how are you protecting your name and everybody just assumed that if you file an llc with the state or you just you know slap a label on your product you automatically own that name and i started to realize you know that this could be a very big problem and so i primarily work with trademarks and the purpose of trademark law is to avoid confusion in the marketplace as to the source of the goods it's really a shortcut that's what they're used for so when you see the nike swoosh you don't need to have the word nike on it you just know that it's nike and it's affiliated with you know a very good reputation of athletic clothing or whatever. That didn't really exist in the cannabis world. And because federal, the US, the United States Patent and Trademark Office is a federal agency. It's authorized by Congress. And so because it's a federal agency, they have to adhere to federal law. And given the federal prohibition, they do not, they were not accepting applications for anything plant touching, right? So if the whole purpose of trademark law is to avoid confusion in the marketplace, (laughs) but folks who have these brands cannot file federal trademark protection, then you're really going against the intent of this body of law. Because if you have an edible products in California, you know, let's that that's named, you know, green cookies. And then in New Jersey, you can have a same brand called Green Cookies. That's confusing to a consumer, and especially in the cannabis space where you know the dosages are different, the strains are different. It could lead to a lot of confusion and a lot of different health issues as well because we use trademarks as shortcuts, and that's what people always need to remember. It's a shortcut. And so if you have two brands of the same one, both that can coexist because there's no federal protection available to them, well, that really undermines the whole purpose behind it. And so that's really the issue that we're seeing a lot. And so cease and desist letters, a lot of intellectual property infringement, it is highly prevalent in this space because of the fact that that we do not have the protections that are generally afforded to other brands. So, uh, so just maybe to frame this for the audience, you know, it's in most other industries, non-cannabis industries or or legal industries, you know, the, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you know, grants these protections uh, to companies that have invested in their brands, so that you don't have confusion in the marketplace. You know, it's really kind of a, con- a consumer protection idea here, right? We want to mm-hmm. we want to make sure that people, you know, if they go to a store and they they see Amy's Edibles or they they see you know a, a brand name product, you know, they. they they know that it really is that that brand, and that's not someone kind of uh, operating under their name. But because of federal, because still federal law under federal law, cannabis is illegal. That protection is not afforded to the cannabis industry. Where are the kind of the boundaries of this? Because you mentioned that if it's plant touching, you know, clearly if I'm you know Amy's Edibles, that's pretty clearly plant touching. But if I'm Greenleaf Accounting Services. That's not plant touching, but it's still potentially related to cannabis. Like, where are the kind of the boundaries, and where are the the lines? Where are the lines, and when do you cross the lines from uh, using 
trademarks uh, in terms of protecting the the brands and the, and the work that you've done? Yeah, sure. So if it is plant touching, so anything, you know, if you're a dispensary, if you are a manufacturer, if you are a cultivator, you cannot apply for federal trademark protection in connection with those services. Okay. So when you apply for a trademark, it's always in connection with a specific good or service. So I always use Nike as an example, right? I was like, they have a couple hundred uh, trademark registrations for their shoes, for their apparel, for their shirts, for, you know, for their different products. There isn't one trademark application that you can put in that'll cover all areas, uh, you know, in different channels of commerce. And so a lot of these cannabis companies were wrongfully assuming that because they're not able to get federal protection for their plant touching side, that they cannot get it at all. And that's really where I came in and I began to study it and I began to look at, you know, different, why different applications were getting refused, how folks were unique to answer it. And so the USPTO asks, you know, it, you know, it, is this in violation of the Controlled Substance Act, even paraphernalia as well? So they asked a series of questions to make sure. Mm -hmm. However, if you are on the ancillary service side, if you are selling clothing, if you have a website, if you have educational services, all of those services are most of the time encompassed in your company. It's main, it may not be the first service that you provide, mm -hmm. but if you're providing educational materials on your website and if you're selling some merchandise, whether it be jars or rolling trays or clothing, well, that you can apply for federal protection for. And so it's important that you really look at all the goods and services that you're using your brand mm. in connection with, yeah. separating that from the plant touching side and then protecting it, protecting the non-plant touching goods or services. Because the whole idea is that once you acquired trademark protection for those non-plant touching areas, when federal prohibition is lifted and we're actually able to, to apply now for the plant touching side, you now have a very strong trademark portfolio that with registered trademarks that you can now use yeah. to help bolster your application for the plant touching side once that is available. So that's really the strategy. It's a long game. So if we're looking five years down the road, start your trademark portfolio now, start the brand recognition, the goodwill, everything that yeah. you possibly can, because as this market continues to get more and more saturated, the only thing that's going to set you apart is the goodwill that's associated with your brand. And if you have five or six other companies in the United States using your same brand name, well, then you're going to have a problem down the road when you're actually really trying to distinguish yourself. Interesting. So you almost kind of create this protective mode, you know, using things you can protect, you know, the non-plant touching products and services, you know, in and around your business, protect those, kind of, you know, leave leave the the plant touching stutch, the plant plant touching things, you know, acknowledge that you can't protect them now, but just kind of lay in wait uh, for, for federal legislation to change. I mean, I guess, are we creating or is the... Are, are there these companies all sort of ready to pounce on, uh, you know, certain brands or certain certain trademarks? You know, once it does go federally legal or or it gets de decriminalized or descheduled, is there going to be a, a rush here? I mean, how do you think this is going to oh, play out from a business point of view? A hundred percent. And the reason that I can say that with a hundred percent certainty is because that's exactly the same thing that happened this past in 2019, yeah. February 2nd of 2019, the United States Patent and Trademark Office um, issued um, a notice that they are now accepting applications for hemp and CBD yeah. uh, goods. 
And so that gave me an insight because I wasn't sure how they're going to handle it after the farm bill passed, because now it's no longer uh, illegal on the federal level. So now they must accept these applications. And I I was wondering how they were going to go about it. Their website crashed, (laughs) which I completely anticipated Uh, it would. They are flooded, flooded right now with applications. I sent it, you know, I sent a notice to all of my clients and said, we have to get our application in right now, like this second. And the USPTO is having so much difficulty with it that they established a team, a new set of examiners specifically designated for cannabis, hemp, and CBD applications. Typically, uh, when you submit an application, it takes about three to four months for a trademark examiner to review your application for completeness. It's taken now over seven, eight months for some of my clients just because it's in the hemp CBD or the cannabis space. So now we're in a, it's, we're waiting a much longer time for a review. um, And it's because they were not prepared. They were not prepared to handle the amount of applications that were going to be done. And, and that's why for cannabis, when that, when that time is, you know, getting near the USBT is going to need to be prepared for all of these marks that are coming in because in cannabis, there's going to be so many more. Yeah, yeah. And have you seen? I mean, have they been issuing marks and stuff already for for CBD and hemp? Yep. What? Some have some have been registered, but the, you know they are. It has to be still in accordance, you know, with with the FDA, ATC yeah. as well. And so they will not accept applications for anything that has if it's you know CBD, nothing in food, beverages, dietary supplements, yeah. or pet products. Yeah. Um, right. But you know, salves and things of that nature, tinctures. We're still not sure about um, yeah, as to, because we have no idea what they're, you know, what it's actually considered. The FDA hasn't provided much guidance on that. So, you know, the USPTO is waiting on the FDA. We're waiting on the USPTO who's waiting on the FDA. And so all of my <laughs> clients, you know, we're kind of in a holding pattern. But what I, you know, what I had let them know is this is what happens when you're pioneering in a space, right? You become the guinea pigs. And yeah. so we have to shoot our shot and put in our applications to make sure that we we, we get an, the earliest priority date possible. However, I'm still not even sure how they're going to handle it because the FDA has provided no guidance on it. And is there an expectation on when? I mean, have they given any sense on, on time frame? I, I have not seen it. I know that there's some some emergency guidelines last year were supposed to come out. Uh, we're still waiting on those as well. So, you know, like I said, for some of my clients, their applications have been pending for seven, eight months now. Yeah. Now. But, you know, at least the, the benefit is that you have your application in there. And that way, as long as your application is in there, you can block third parties from coming in and trying to apply for your mark. So whether or not some of these are going to be successful, you know, for for salves and, and lotions and everything, there's a much higher chance because the FDA has not really ruled on on that just yet. But now when you're talking about ingestibles, Right, which a lot of people have tinctures. Like, you know, what CBD company doesn't have tinctures? Yeah, exactly. Um, Or edibles, or gummies, or things of that nature. But until the FDA really provides some sort of concrete guidance, the USPTO also is unsure what to do, and that creeps down all the way down to to us. Yeah. 
Yeah, and for for the benefit of listeners, I was going to do this at, at the top of the episode, but we're we're recording this in the end of January 2020, so <laughs> things may be different depending on when you're right. actually listening to this. So I guess you know strategically, what does that mean, or how do you approach this? Do you have like a series of sort of different filing sort of papers and strategies that as you know as the FDA you know might rule in different ways? Then you'd like go to the folder that has this version of the documents that you'd quickly submit so you can get kind of get in the queue and get your protection status. I mean, what do you what do you do strategically? when working with a company when you've got this kind of uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty, you know, context that you're operating within? So probably the most important thing that I do is make sure I I review their websites very carefully because when you're providing proof of use, the the examiners from the United States Patent and Trademark Office are going to go and they're going to review and to make sure that what you're saying is truthful, right? So, you know, if some folks are like, well, we don't have to put that we have hemp or CBD on there. I said, well, they're just going to research you and they're going to find out, you know, that it's there. Mm -hmm. So we need to be truthful, but there's different ways of going about it. And so you need to be very strategic in how you describe your goods, how you describe your services, because that could mean the difference between you getting refused or you passing through. And so, you know, I looked through hundreds of applications. I saw what was getting through. I realized that there were certain ways to answer refusal questions. Mm. And I created sort of a pattern for myself of like, if this happens, this is how we respond. If this happens, this is how we respond. But it's taken, you know, about two years worth of tracking these applications because, you know, should you be cited, you can use other applications as precedent as to why yours should move forward. So I pay very close attention to all marks for cannabis and hemp or CBD that have been registered, why they were registered, how they got through it, the amount of time that it took, what type of goods, what type of proof of use that they provided as well. So, you know, sometimes for clients who have dispensaries, right, I cannot, we cannot file a proof of use of you selling cannabis on your website, right? But if you make a section, a blog section, and it's all education, then that's what we're protecting. We're not protecting the sale of cannabis on your website. We're now protecting the educational components. So I also work with them and their website developer of how to place the mark, what type of educational materials you know really they, they should be providing, and how to keep their their website separate where it's one part is you know you're advertising and selling for your cannabis, and the other part is education. And how do you do that? I mean, look, what's the what are the kind of the heuristics that that would from the USPTO point of view clarify for them that oh I see this is your commerce section this is your educational section and I they're differentiated enough that I'm willing to give you protection like how do you literally do that from a website design website strategy point of view are they different URLs do you have to do subdomains no no not different URLs the the only thing that I know that it's just on the ed- educational page, there can be no advertising of your cannabis products. Okay, That's really where it is. Because once you're advertising, now you are promoting the consumption of a good that is federally illegal. And that is what the USPTO will not allow. So once again, it all comes down to your description. So when I do it for your website and your educational services, I make it very, very clear that we are protecting the educational component of this. Now, the good thing, you know, because some folks are like, but that's not what I do. And what I let them know is, well, there's this really, really cool aspect of trademark law called the natural zone of expansion. And what that means, and and it's very helpful in cannabis, is if we, you know, we do clothing uh, with cannabis, we do, you know, merchandise, you know, like for cannabis, we do your educational services and entertainment service for cannabis. There's cannabis all over your application. 
and yet you're not touched, but we're not protecting your plant touching goods. But now with the zone of expansion, should anybody try to, you know, get a trademark for something that is plant touching with your name? Well, we can say, well, you know, naturally we would expand into that area once it's allowed. And so you kind of create this very large bubble around yourself. And so the more protections that you're afforded, more registrations that you have, the bigger that bubble becomes, right? So for example, let's say you filed a trademark application for couches, right? But not for chairs and not for tables. And somebody else wants to do the same. Well, it's reasonable that eventually you'll expand into tables and chairs. And so somebody who wants to sell an item, tables or chairs under your same brand name, won't be able to, that you'll be precluded by your registration, by the nature of the zone of expansion. Interesting. So it's kind of like a wiggle room. It's, it says, look, we realize that, you know, businesses evolve or, you know, will grow and yep. go into different areas, pivot into different kind of adjacent products and services. So they kind of bake that into the protection so that if you do, yeah, add this product or service, and as long as it's adjacent to what you're doing now, you can get that protection. It just, that just prevents someone from coming in and, you know, using your brand or, or creating a brand, sort of duplicating your brand and, and bumping up right next to you. And now you've got consumer confusion because they're like, well, wait a minute, I know Bob's couches, you know, and I'm assuming that if it's a chair, Bob's chairs, I'm assuming it's the same company, but, you know, it may not be. So they, they give you that, uh, they give you exactly, that buffer. Exactly, exactly. And, huh. and the natural zone expansion is just so helpful in cannabis because what I tell folks is we need to get as close to the plant as possible and stay as far away from it as possible. Yeah. yeah that yeah. way, your zone of expansion is, you know, the more that you involve cannabis, but not the plant touching side, the better it is for you because now you're establishing your goodwill in in the cannabis space by having this application and you're putting the entire U.S. on notice, it's constructive notice that you're using it. And if, you know, any lawyers in the cannabis space will tell you that you understand why they're filing this way, you it's a place, they're placeholders yeah. for when federal prohibition is lifted and then you go right in. So it's an understanding also amongst the cannabis trademark lawyer community that that's what's being done. <laughs> so there, there's a, a little bit of... Uh collusion <laughs> going on in, in yeah. law, just given the situation, people kind of understand or people get what the, the strategies are. Exactly. It, when it comes to the to the trademarks and stuff themselves, I mean, do you run into problems? Like, can you use cannabis and pot and weed and stuff like yeah. that in the names themselves, so long as you're not promoting or selling actual cannabis products? Yep, That's sure the, can. Yep, it. you can put cannabis in there in the name, weed anywhere in the name. That's just no problem at all. There's There's many of those. There's hundreds and hundreds of those, which is also why when you're choosing a brand name and you're starting from scratch, a lot of people like to, uh, you know, use canna in their name or, you know, weed or, or some sort of, you know, alliteration that, that alludes to cannabis. And I think a couple of years ago, that would have been a very good idea because cannabis wasn't so mainstream. Yeah. But now that it is mainstream and now that, you know, the market is just constantly now saturated with brands on brands on brands, now you're going to have a much harder time distinguishing yourself if it's canna, 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 canna. Interesting. Um, and so I, I tell folks, I'm like, the best thing that you can do is find a unique name in the, the legal, the trademark legal realm. It's called arbitrary, it's yeah. an arbitrary trademark, something yeah. that doesn't have anything to do with your product, right? Like Apple computers, yeah. something like that. And the answer, the response that I get is, well, how are they going to know what I'm doing? How are they yeah. going to know about yeah. my company if I don't? You know? And I tell them like, that's not the point. Your literal elements of your brand, that's not their responsibility. It is your responsibility to build up that brand recognition and that goodwill that is then associated with a very unique name. 
That way, when you go out there into the marketplace, you have such a distinctive name that carries weight, you know, for the goodwill and the brand recognition that you've built up, but it should not be relying on the little elements to tell your consumer what you're doing. And if that's your game plan, you're not going to get very far because the investment shouldn't really be in that. It should be in just creating the goodwill around it. Yeah, so it's like it's like the difference between naming your company Furniture Barn and Ikea. <laughs> furniture right. Barn is not going to, many people are going to, Furniture Barn, Furniture Warehouse, Furniture Store, you know, whereas Ikea, like, no, like, you know, that that is arbitrary in the sense of you can build, you can protect that, and then you just build a reputation of saying, okay, yeah, Ikea is known for furniture, but it's not about the name. It's not about the, the SEO exactly. term that you're it's, trying it's to run. It's not your, it's like yeah. not your brand's name. That's not the responsibility of your brand. It's your responsibility. Um, so that's what I always try to get across to my clients. And sometimes it's difficult, you know, sometimes folks are really married to a certain name, yeah. but I just then do have to caution them. Well, you know, you're in a sea of 200 canon names, you're, you may have a, a bit of a harder time distinguishing yourself, but if you can be creative enough, then it's not impossible. But, you know, if you want to start out in a different manner, then you'll just have a much easier time down the road for folks to really recognize your brand and associate it with you. Yeah. So which should companies really start to think about this? Because, you know, in the early stages, you know, everyone's, you know, they're just trying to get an idea off the ground. They're trying to develop some product. They're trying to, um, you know, just kind of get things started. When should they, you know, sit down and really take the time, spend the money to, you know, invest in this kind of protection in the business cycle? What's your advice or what do you generally suggest to folks? So I always suggest to meet with a trademark attorney pretty immediately. Once you've found a name that you and your team agree on, a name that you plan on investing in and a lot of time and energy and money in, that's at the point where you should contact the trademark attorney. Because the problem is, is that if you're using it now for a year or two and you come to me and you're like, you know, now I really want to trademark my name, I do a what's called a trademark clearance report. That's the first step is I have to prepare a search using the federal database to make sure that there's no other names that can, that'll, um, that are similar to yours or that are identical to yours, which is even worse. And then I provide an assessment of, you know, yes, this has a high likelihood of being registered or it doesn't um, because folks just think that it just has to do with an identical name. But the the standard for trademark law is with the is, consumer, yeah. is substantially similar. Yeah. So even if it's similar in, in pronunciation or spelling, then you're going to be refused and you just wasted a lot of money. So really from the beginning, you know, sometimes what I have clients do is they'll come and they say, I have three names that I'm thinking about. And that's one of the the best approaches is you give me three names, I prepare the search reports, and I provide you which one has the highest likelihood of successfully registering with the USPTO. Um, And then now they feel comfortable moving forward because now we can put an application in. They've now, you know, now they're first in line to to be awarded this registration. They have their earlier priority date and they haven't invested any sort of time or money into it yet. So they're able to pivot much easier. It's a lot harder when you've already been using your name for two, three years. And now I'm letting, you know, I'm the the big bad lawyer letting you know, well, there's these other groups that just applied, you know, either a month or two prior. Now it's expensive because now we're going into litigation territory because now you have to claim, you know, and this will go into the nuances uh, of trademark love, who did it first, who who used it first, right? It's all 
about first use. And now it's expensive. And now it's uncomfortable for for the client. And now they have to think about rebranding. And I've had it. I I had a client who had to rebrand entirely. And that's unfortunate when you've already invested so much time. So if it is a brand name that you've come up up with or that you've paid, you know, an agency to come up with for you, uh, then talk to a lawyer, get that search report done. If it doesn't come out, you know, it doesn't, doesn't come out well, well, you just spent a couple hundred dollars to be sure that it's going to work or it's not going to work as opposed to down the road where now you have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to rebrand. And that's a whole lot of goodwill that you have to make up now over all those years. Yeah, yeah. Just good. This has been a pleasure. Um, if people want to know more about you, have questions around uh, you know brands and trademarks and protecting these these assets and the and the work they're doing in their businesses, what's the best way to get more information? Sure. So they can email me at my email, which is j gonzalez g j g o n z a l e z at bressler.com, B-R-E-S-S-L-E-R. Or um, you can check out my Instagram as well. And that's Canabogada. So C-A-N-N-A-B-O-G-A-D-A. Right. I'll make sure that uh, uh, email address and the handle, Instagram handle are on the show notes so people can click through and get those. Again, uh, this has been a pleasure. I always love kind of getting into the weeds on, uh, no pun intended, actually no, the, right. pun, <laughs> the, pun, the pun was intended, you know, on, on some of these matters in, in cannabis. It, it would, it's what makes this industry so fascinating. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you and, and great insightful information. So I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.